0: Impact of Influence: The tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths they are linked to. Hello, friend. I'm Matt Harris. And who are you?
1: Seton Tucker.
0: <laughs> I was wondering who you were. Uh, somebody had said that you should introduce yourself because I usually just go, hey, "I'm Matt," and she's Seton. But so now you did it. I did it. Who am I? <laughs>
1: Matt Harris. <laughs> Thank
0: you, Seton Tucker. Uh, but we're just, we're just joking. We enjoy all the feedback we get, and you can reach out to us, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, murdochpodcast.com. And, yeah, we try to answer as quickly as we can, but we get a lot. Want to take this one now? Yeah, so, let's, sure. let's do it. Uh, here's an example. Alba on Facebook messaged, Hi, I enjoy most of your episodes, but the ones that you call an interview with Alex's brother are very disappointing. It's all hearsay. We aren't allowed to hear him in his own words. Everything is filtered through Seton, and we have to take everything at face value. When nothing in this case can be taken at face value, why are you carrying his this guy's water? I know you say you're trying to be fair, but these episodes, along with that one interview with a local resident, make me seriously doubt your fairness and partiality. Just my opinion. Thank you. Do appreciate you listening and asking. Explain again for those who don't know why. Alex' brother, John Marvin, does not come on the podcast with us.
1: Well, I think he's just more comfortable giving an interview instead of appearing on a podcast. Uh, He could have also been advised by his attorney not to. I don't really know that for sure. We hate to have a listener disappointed. I'm glad that she's going to continue to listen to us. Uh, We try to present all sides on our podcast. And I just personally thought it would be interesting to hear what Don Marvin had to say about the event's of the day of Maggie and Paul's death.
0: And I agree, and I found it interesting, and it is up to you as a friend and listener of the show to decide which parts of any interview we have with someone you think are uh, is the truth or not the truth. That brings us to this episode, which we're going to talk about some of the legal stuff that's happening. So we bring in our legal analyst, former DA, former defense attorney, John Snyder.
1: So first, I think we need to talk about Russell Lafitte. Um, He was the former banker who worked for Palmetto State Bank. What was he charged with?
0: Twenty-one alleged crimes, including breach of trust with fraudulent intent, computer crime, criminal conspiracy.
1: Okay, so he had his bond hearing in front of Judge Lee, along with it was a virtual hearing. There was also Corey Fleming, who was Alex's former best friend, an attorney, an attorney. And Alec, who also had some new charges against them. So Judge Lee uh, set Russell's bond at $1 million, and he is required to remain on house arrest. That seems like a really high amount. Let's talk about that first, because that is vastly different than the bond amount that was set for Corey Fleming.
0: Which was 100000 So I think the big
2: difference here is the time of when the bond has been set and the nature of the allegations that are now known and maybe even the fact that one might be assisting in uncovering uh, what's going on and the other may be an obstruction to all that. And so in South Carolina, there's, there are uh, guidelines set by statute. The court considers those guidelines and the evidence that's presented to them at a bond hearing, and then they set the bond based on those. And so those can those can be connection to the community. Those can be the nature of the allegations against a person. They can be information that's provided to the court, and that can include the allegations in civil lawsuits even. And so a judge might look at what Fleming did way back when And say, okay, based on this, based on the evidence before me, I'm going to set bond at this. And they can consider that he's an officer of the court. And then they might look at the feet and say, okay, well, maybe you have a beach house in a foreign country. Or, you know, maybe you have a second residence. Maybe there may be some, some other factors we don't know about that make both bonds reasonable.
1: Well, let's talk about this house arrest and also monitoring. This seems unusual for a white collar crime. What do you think?
2: I don't know that it does based on the the millions of dollars that are at stake here. There's got to be some reason and, and maybe it's even more egregious what the court feels like, what Lafitte's accused of as opposed to other defendants in similar criminal cases. The monitoring and the house arrest don't necessarily mean he is in his house 24 hours a day, can't leave. It means that he he probably has times that he can go to the grocery store, times that he might be able to go to church, times that he might be able to go, you know, do whatever job he might have to go do. But he can't, he can't go out to a friend's house. He can't go to the movie theater. It's a less expensive way to, with uh, defendants on a pre-trial basis, but having the ankle monitor and the house arrest makes sure that Lafitte's not just living his best life while he's out on bond. So he's not, you know, he's not at the country club playing golf every day. He, he's got very limited places of where he can go and what he can do.
0: I want to point out, in case you haven't followed along the whole time, the prosecuting attorney for the state attorney general's office said that what would happen was, he's accusing them of going, a a check would come in from a client trust account made out to the bank, Palmetto State Bank, where Lafitte worked and family owned for years. And he would convert them for Murdoch's personal use in that Forge account we mentioned before. So that is is not uh not a good thing if you're a banker to be basically laundering money in a way. Uh that could have had something to do with the 1 million dollar bond as well. Yeah.
1: So one thing I found interesting when watching the virtual hearing was that uh Russell was ordered not to have any contact with anyone with Palmetto State Bank and his attorney said well many of his close family members still work for the bank. So he asked the judge for an exception. And the judge did grant this to him and just with the exclusion of not to talk about any bank business. John, do you think this is unusual?
2: No, I don't, I don't think it's unusual. I think it's consistent. The court's probably really fed up with what they're seeing, what they're hearing, and what they're reading, you know, as, as things just kind of roll out. So it goes from you banked with Palmetto to an officer at Palmetto was taking checks, written to Palmetto, cashing them, and then dispersing cash to his customer. Like, that's not good banking behavior. Bank (laughs) Bank of America doesn't write checks to itself and then give to somebody.
1: Well, I (laughs) guess it would be unusual for the the court to say you can't have contact with your sister or other family members, but it also brings up the problem of how can you guarantee they're not going to discuss any banking business?
2: Because you don't want to go to jail. and you know, <laughs> yeah, That's, true. I that's don't know, a good point. I don't know what his house is like, but I'm sure it probably has Netflix and his own bed versus steel oh, yeah. bars and, and a concrete
0: wall. <laughs> okay, so, fair enough. What do you have for us about the Beach and Parker?
1: So we talked about this kind of side case before where... Uh, in the Mallory Beach boating accident. And just kind of a recap, the Beach family has filed suit against Parker's convenience store chain for emotional distress. Parker's is the store where Paul allegedly purchased the alcohol the night that Mallory Beach died. The lawsuit filed by the Beach family says that Parker launched the social media campaign to harass the family. And then on May 3rd, Parker's files this emergency motion for a protective order and memo in support. And I think this has to do with the Beach team had previously had a subpoena where they wanted to get documents from a PR team called PUSH that was hired by Parkers in the aftermath of the boating accident. So, John, what is this and what does it mean?
2: Okay, so there was, subpoenas were sent out, objections were lodged to the information being subpoenaed. The people that had the information did not object to turning it over, but, but Parker's attorney did object and filed an objection. There was a hearing on the objection, and they decided to not grant that motion. And so the Push Digital and some other uh, subpoenaed parties were you know, basically ordered to turn over material. Immediately after the hearing, Bush's attorney turned over that material, even though a final order had not been sent out. And so this new motion is from Parker's attorney to object to the plaintiff's attorney from having this material or reading it or using it, is basically what happened. And so the controversy is, well, there wasn't a formal order, the judge just indicated what he was going to rule, but it never was written down, and Parker's attorney would have had 10 days to object to that order no matter what. And so Parker's attorney is saying, Cush's attorney jumped the gun on giving out evidence.
1: So they also bring up the fact that, I guess they got some sort of email or something from a law clerk, and they say that the law clerk can't rule. Um, and so I was just... Curious on this is this more lawyers be lawyering or if this is valid?
2: I think Parker's attorney in spirit is correct, which is an order isn't valid until a judge signs it. So what Parker's attorney is saying is that push pushes attorney's release this information prior to an order allowing them to release the information was issued. Therefore, they can't have it.
1: Why is Parker's fighting so hard not to have this information released?
2: Typically, insurance defense lawyers fight at every single point in, in the litigation process to defend their client to the fullest extent of the law and the legal process. Because most insurance defense lawyers are do what Parker's lawyers are doing, which is subpoenas go out, object to the subpoena. Schedule a hearing. Hearing a few months later, hearing happens. Order not out. You know, it's just
0: drag it out. They, delay it. The, uh,
2: They use the legal process to to their advantages. I don't. I don't. Wanna, I don't. don't want to say it's dragging out because that's that's okay. that's negative. They're they're definitely using the process to adequately defend their client. I think this is Parker's lawyers are doing their job and what they've been hired to do. And 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 this is the new law firm that Parker's brought in to defend these claims. And so they may be trying to set a tone in in their litigation strategy.
0: Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or a tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. It's instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there, they've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off, unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today.
1: So next, we have an affidavit filed by Morgan. Morgan was Paul's former girlfriend, and she filed an affidavit in relation to a lawsuit for injury sustained in the boating accident that killed Mallory Beach. In this affidavit, she details Paul's drinking and his parents' knowledge of his behavior. Affidavit states that Paul regularly drove cars and boats while under the influence um. It also talks about a prior accident where Paul's parents paid for another vehicle to be fixed where he was allegedly drunk.
0: They're partying. There's pictures, a lot of pictures of Alec partying on boats. And they went, I think they went to the Bahamas. There's multiple incidents right, and photos of partying going on.
1: Right, and she's saying that Paul's parents had knowledge of his drinking. And driving. And driving.
0: Boats, especially the boats. Why is this... Helpful to Morgan's case.
2: This is what the plaintiff's lawyers believe will help establish maybe a common plan or scheme of Paul's behavior and the other defendants in the lawsuit, meaning they they regularly were aware that he drank and drove. They were regularly aware that he used, uh, uh, you know, fake IDs. They were regularly aware and, and all this will become very important uh, related to the receivership issues over who, who has assets that can be recovered from and or whose insurance can, can claims be made on. I think it was done specifically to kind of alert the, the court to what the normal course of business was with, with this family related to alcohol use and behavior of their son. Now the, the flip side is he is over the age of eighteen, so it's it's this weird dynamic where he's an adult, you know what responsibility do they bear for an adult child? Uh-huh. Uh, so, so there, there's, some, there's some other issues that, that will arise and, and kind of the legal weeds, but ultimately, this is to show that no one no one didn't
0: know that Paul had some issues specifically, Alec and Buster, because they're the two people in the yep. lawsuit. That
1: uh, well, now, Maggie's now Maggie's estate is now named as well. Um, but then we also have the contributory negligence part about potentially Morgan having knowledge of Paul's abuse.
2: That is a possibility that w- that could affect the amount. And you were where he was drinking, but you got onto the boat anyway. I, but I don't think that will bar that wouldn't bar recovery under a comparative negligence. Um, standard.
0: We have more on jailhouse tapes.
1: Yes, we have a little bit more on jailhouse tapes. These were the tapes of Alec talking to family members and others that were released to some news outlets. So we have a motion for entry of a confidentiality order that was consented by all parties. So why would everyone agree to this, Don?
2: I think to keep there from being any further issues with any other uh, tapes or recordings moving forward. I think mean, it's probably just good policy to, to try to focus on the issues at hand, not, cr- not create new issues.
0: Cause the new issues could potentially hurt the prosecution of LA like down the line. Right. And they don't want that as far as like jury, jury pool and all that stuff.
2: Yeah. When you get a yeah. conviction, you want it to be a, as clean as possible conviction you do not want to lose your case on appeal. It's it's a challenging job because you not only are you thinking about the case now, but you have to think about what if this gets appealed, and make sure that everything you do from from the crime scene all the way to the courtroom has been cataloged, has been there's evidence chains, there, there's no there's no sideshows that cause you to lose the state fair next year. And so it's really important. To to keep distractions to a minimum.
1: Okay, so we also in this jailhouse uh, tapes lawsuit, we have plaintiffs response to interrogatories. So, just for us non legal folks, can you explain what interrogatories are?
2: Yeah, so you have you have a lawsuit filed. You have time to respond, and once once that's happened, then uh, the attorney start sending out discovery, and discovery is depositions interrogatories, requests for admission, and subpoenas. And so uh, these are prepared questions by one side to the other to the opposite party of them and asking them to produce evidence and provide responses.
0: So what does the latest motion mean as far as the commercial gain brought on by these private conversations and the they mentioned exploitation in these conversations? What does that mean?
2: Basically, it's, it's Alex's, uh, Alex's attorneys asking the court to not allow their clients' rights to be violated by these tapes being released and then being released to media for a commercial basis. So, So basically, he, he's got rights that are being violated, and we don't want his rights to be violated in the future. Court, will you give us protection to that end?
1: Just two things just to point out. Kitchens, who was the jail director... Um, and his response says that he did not make any personal decisions about releasing tapes. Nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with to it. Him.
0: And also, uh, do you want to touch on the receivership?
1: Yes. There was a hearing held a week ago in front of Judge Hall to go over a bunch of financial stuff related to Alex. Uh The court was asked to approve the sale of the Edisto property for close to $1 million. And this was approved, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the funds are going to go to Alex, does it?
2: That does not mean that at all. Okay. It it, it, it means that the, the receivers will decide where, where the money goes.
0: And Alex's attorneys want the receivership to be removed. They asked the court to do that. And then they claimed it would impact future South Carolina law. And on the 12th of May, Judge Hull said, nope. Uh, was that surprising? And could it impact Law in South Carolina,
2: yeah, so I think it's two two things that are interesting here. one is does not surprise me again, just looking at you know what we talked about the other day with the with the Nautilus <laughs> complaint, Alec is operating in a whole nother level of of criminality potentially based on the allegations and based on the indictments. And so I think it's fair for the court to say, hey, we have allegations of you stealing millions of dollars. Therefore, we think somebody else should should have a gatekeeping function on those millions of dollars, which leads to the second thing with with his attorney saying, oh, this is bad case law This is bad for South Carolina. You know, plaintiff's lawyers all over the world will be start filing these motions. You know, cats will be walking with dogs. It's going to be pandemonium. And the truth is, it probably is not. <laughs> um, not many lawyers have ever, and I don't think anyone's ever done anything like this and that I've ever heard of. And so this is a rare case and most PI cases don't involve people that were engaged in massive criminal schemes that, and so I think, I don't, I don't think this will become the norm.
1: Well, Harpootlian did refer to it as the Murdoch loophole, so I thought that was kind of
0: <laughs> yeah interesting. But you're like you're right, this is an outlier, and it's not going to cause a major shakeup. You're thinking, John? And, and if the sta- I mean, if the standard
2: is okay, if the standard is receivers are appointed in cases where the defendant is a uh, was a practicing lawyer that stole millions of uh, you know, allegedly stole millions <laughs> of dollars from people. Uh, okay, if that's the new case law, then then lawyers that steal millions of dollars <laughs> be aware that you might have a receiver appointed in your
0: case. that'll stop them.
2: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of, that's, that's how this all plays out. I, I don't, I think it's appropriate to have a receiver. The only bad thing about receivers is they're expensive, and so a lot of money gets used up their latest fee application was for seventy five thousand dollars mm. so far.
0: Okay. Well,
1: so, I mean, hopefully they're uncovering where all these millions of dollars that were allegedly right. stolen yep. is it yep. doesn't
2: mean that it doesn't mean that they don't have value, but when there's a business dispute and one party wants to have a, a receiver appointed, I'm like, well you can have a receiver appointed but there may not be any money left in the company. If you start running everybody that's working on the company's operations at $400, $500 an hour, you got to have a really good company to survive
0: that. All right. Thank you, John Snyder. Thank you guys. All right. So that's uh, about a wrap on this episode. We started at the beginning of this episode with a couple of comments where they weren't thrilled with us necessarily, but we always like that. Even if you're not thrilled. Uh, this is a comment that says uh, it's been exciting to hear Matt and Seaton develop as podcasters. They've created their own niche and style and do it well. No self-aggrandizing with these two. They stay focused on the Murdochs. Number 53, that episode with a former FBI agent and forensic expert is a must. And this person says, Matt and Seaton have done an excellent job. They often ask the same questions i've been thinking when they have those experts on so thank you guys appreciate it yes thank you murdoch podcast murdochpodcast.com reach out always grateful talk to you soon
3: true terrors of horror bizarre happenings unexplainable events on our podcast disturbed terror takes center stage each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat